0: Luke chapter 2, verses 13 through 15. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly hosts appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Come, Holy Spirit. We know that prayer is not a prayer of location, Spirit, because you are here, but it is a prayer of invitation and intimacy, because we want more of you. Would you come and testify to Jesus? Would you point us to him through your word? And may we leave people changed at the proclamation of the word this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. amen. You may be seated. So I don't know if you've noticed, but this Advent series, you haven't been hearing much from me. Much of you feel that's a much-needed break. I feel similarly. Um, <laughs> we got a special treat this morning. He's already up here. He's looming behind me. <laughs> um, i closed my eyes, opened him, and he was there, so that was a little terrifying. But kind of kills the surprise a bit. I should call somebody else up just to throw everybody off. Um, We got a real special treat, guys. Um, Nate's gonna be bringing the word this morning. It's his first time on a Sunday. So if you could do me a favor, try to have a smile on your face. It's a little scary on this side of things, okay? So there's some judgmental looks that we get. So a little little bit of kindness, a little bit of grace. And guys, would you give him the warmest Zion welcome as he comes to bring the word?
1: like all my favorite people are here, too. It's pretty sick. I feel very loved. There is not a so-secret formula behind all of the stories that we love. These stories usually open with a seemingly ordinary and tucked away person in the corner of common life. Nothing about them says they carry the qualities to be a hero. Maybe there are some qualities that would help argue the opposite, that they don't have the qualities to be a hero. They are often overlooked and living in the shadows of obscurity when all of a sudden, something breaks into their ordinary life. In an instant, they're called out of their mundane lives and called to action. Now they are forced into a place of decision, a call to go beyond their ordinary life and step into a life of purpose or stay hidden away, living in obscurity. This, the result is usually a refusal to the answer of that call. There's something nagging inside of them, saying that they can't possibly be the one to accomplish this task. Then usually they meet a mentor, some figure who helps them accept that call and to venture out. Think like Mufasa in the clouds in Lion King or Obi-Wan Kenobi in Star Wars. As the story continues, they are on their unlikely journey and they encounter a variety of trials and hardships and it strengthens and proves their character. Then they must face their fears and come through the other side of that journey and as they near the end, they now are a stronger person and this is all in preparation to their greatest test. They face off with their greatest dilemma. <laughs> there we are. You're, like turned off for a second their greatest dilemma, and must overcome some unthinkable obstacle or enemy. When they've finally defeated or conquered that obstacle, now they have the journey home, where they have now become a person they thought they could never be. And the super special formula for all the stories that we love is called the hero's journey. And all the great stories have it, like the Lion King or Star Wars, the Lord of the Rings or the Hunger Games or Harry Potter, Uh, all these stories, are variations of the same story. Now, why is that? Why is it that we never get bored of this story? This story is a common story. It's the human story we always gravitate towards. It is the story of how the world works. Breakthrough begins in the margins. The hero's journey gets, a fund- gets at a fundamental truth. The way darkness and evil or struggles are overcome is that the antidote, the fix or the hero, always comes from the margins. It's always in unlikely places with unlikely people. This truth points to the reality of the way God works in the world. God chooses and uses the humble and the lowly. His purpose is to bring about his kingdom which is marked by his presence and peace. To all that have ears to hear and eyes to see, there's an invitation to partner with him in this story he was writing in our world. This is what Advent's all about, God breaking into the human story. Today, as we continue in our series Doxology in the Darkness, where as a community we've been looking at the songs surrounding the Advent of Jesus coming into our world, today I want to look at the song, of the, the song that the angels sing at his birth. Now, before we get to that song, I want to set up the scene that we're jumping into. So we're going to start Luke chapter 2, verse 1. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor over Syria. And everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to, marry, to be married to him and was expecting a child. Our story opens up with the people of God under the very authoritarian rule of the Roman Empire. As we've discussed in the previous weeks, The world Jesus was born into was marked by darkness, war, oppression, famine, disease, and just struggle in general. In the biblical narrative, there is a lot of anticipation of a ruler who would come and make all things right. And this is where we find the people of God in a season of waiting, longing for the one who would come and set all things right and make all things whole again. This is the one they call the Messiah, the anointed one. The biblical narrative opens with humanity in the garden, with God, and all things are good in the fullest sense of that word. But things don't stay that way. There is a talking serpent in the garden, and he's really good at lying. He convinces the first humans to rebel, and they define good and evil on their own terms. And in doing this, they bring about evil, brokenness, and death into what was once God's good world. So what was once beautiful and good has become vandalized and marred by this act of rebellion. But in the same moment that sin was brought into the world, God makes a promise that through the seed of the woman, one would come that would crush the serpent, but also the serpent would strike his heel. In the rest of the story that the Bible tells, we're looking forward to the one that would be the snake crusher, which, side note, would be a good metal band name. (laughs) Snake crusher would be pretty sick. Anyways, in this story, God chooses a man named Abraham who would be the start of this family from which the Messiah, the snake crusher, would come. Later, we arrive at a man named David who seems to be the best prospect to be this anointed one, but he too is infected by the serpent and chooses to rebel against God. And king after king after king, leader after leader, we are left longing for the promised king. Throughout the Old Testament, we have these figures called prophets, and they're responsible for reminding the people of God of the hope bound up in the promised king who would come and make all things right. Then the Gospels open with the story of Jesus, and his life is the culmination of the story. He is the one the prophets have been talking about, the Messiah, the snake crusher. In our series, we've been following Luke's gospel and revealing that. First, when Anna and Simeon see Jesus and say he is the anointed one. Then, when Zechariah and Elizabeth conceive their son, it is with the promise that he would be the one to usher in the Messiah. When Mary receives word that she would conceive a child, the angel tells her that this is the promised Messiah. And when Mary and Elizabeth see one another, it confirms it. Even with the details, Luke adds here about the content of the arrival of Jesus to point us towards this reality. He is the one we've been waiting for. Darrell Box says, Jesus Christ has the right heritage. He is born of pious Davidic parents in the city that the Old Testament promised would be the birthplace of a ruler. The chance of a census had made it happen. Rome was an unconscious agent in God's work. The profane decree of a census had yielded a divine event. A stable was the Messiah's first throne room. Every year we enter into this time called Advent, and Advent simply means arrival. But Advent is always a time marked by anticipation and waiting. We position ourselves in the tension of this biblical narrative of those that are waiting for the arrival of the promised Messiah. But we are also reminded of our own waiting, that we too are waiting for Jesus to come again and set all things right. So, Advent is a time of waiting. And if we're honest, we really hate waiting, whether it's at the self-checkout, at the store, or we're waiting for that Amazon order to come in that we ordered way too late for it to come in time for Christmas. We all hate waiting. And as we've seen over the last several weeks, On the first several pages of Luke, people are waiting. Anna and Simeon, Zachariah and Elizabeth, Mary, all waiting. And maybe you're waiting for something too. For that promotion to come through. For the prodigal child to return to faith. For a prognosis of an illness. For a relationship to be restored. For the sting of grief just to hurt a little bit less. Then Advent is for you. You see, Advent is a reminder that we have hope while we wait because all that causes our heart to ache will one day be made right. Everything broken will be made whole. Advent is the reminder that what we are actually waiting for is already on the way. Henry Nouwen, people people who wait have received a promise that allows them to wait. They have received something that is at work in them, like a seed that is starting to grow. We can only wait if, we are wait if what we are waiting for has already begun for us. So waiting is never a movement from nothing to something. It is always a movement from something to something more. But showing Jesus as the rightful ruler of the world is not the only thing Luke is doing. He is also contrasting Jesus with the rulers of the day. Let's jump back to the text. While they were there in Bethlehem, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. There's a difference to be seen between the current ruler over Israel, the Roman ruler over Israel, Herod, and Jesus. Herod, we know, is a person drunk on power, willing to murder anyone that gets in the way of what they want, or that's a threat to his throne. Jesus is born at the bottom rung of society. Herod lives in the abundance of luxury, and Jesus is born in a feeding trough for animals. Herod is driven by his ego and his pride, calling for all people to acknowledge his authority. Jesus, God in the flesh, lived a, mark, a life marked by humility. Herod lives his life to be served, and Jesus came to give his life in service. Herod thinks he's the ruler over Jerusalem, and Jesus is ruler of the cosmos. The way God works in the world is in the margins, and it can't be more clear than in the incarnation, the moment Jesus steps into our story. You see, Jesus could have been born into luxury, prominence, in power and wealth, but instead at the incarnation, Jesus comes to us as humble and lowly. And I don't think we can make up a more humble birth for Jesus. Could you imagine being in Mary and Joseph's shoes? I think it must have been really terrifying. I mean, even giving birth in a hospital that's really clean, you have all the resources you could ever need, to me seems pretty terrifying. (laughs) Mary and Joseph are in an unknown place with unknown people, and of all times, it's it's time for the baby to come now. When I think about this situation and put myself in their shoes, I like feel anxiety welling up inside of me. And maybe you're here and you are feeling anxious about some circumstance or situation in your life. How might God be taking the very thing that is making you anxious, and bringing something wonderful and beautiful out of it. I wonder if Mary and Joseph were panicking because they knew how important this baby was. They both had encounters with angels telling them that it was pretty important. But now, couldn't there just be another miracle where a doctor just happens to be around in his vacation home in Bethlehem with an extra room for this young couple? It's just a thought. But Mary gives birth in an animal shed And the king of the world is laid in an animal's food trough. The king and creator of the world laid in the dirty and in the dusty. Being more deserving than anyone of a clean and at least semi-sanitary place to be born. Worthy of living in the most extravagant palace, Jesus was born into the margins. And this is how God's kingdom works. God loves to move in the margins and in the unknown. God's kingdom is so much the inversion of what we think when we think of a kingdom. It doesn't come through political or military powers, but it grows out of the unknown with seemingly unknown people. Frederick Buchner, Bachner, says the incarnation is a kind of vast joke whereby the creator of the ends of the earth comes among us in diapers. Until we too have taken the idea of the God-man seriously enough to be scandalized by it, we have not taken it as seriously as it demands to be taken. And I don't know why, but saying that he came in diapers makes it feel real in a different kind of way. I think the imagery of the Creator being taken care of by the created in the same way that we had to be taken care of as babies, it helps me more fully understand how just insane it is that Jesus came this humbly. He didn't come as an adult ready to start his ministry but he came helpless as a baby. You can't help but see why it's scandalous. The same God of the Old Testament, all-powerful and mighty, just and holy, now humbly in the hands of the creation, with the end goal in mind to save these very people, to be the savior of the world. St. Augustine says, man's maker was made man that he, the ruler of the stars, might nurse at his mother's breast, that the bread might hunger, the fountain thirst, the light sleep, the way be tired on its journey, that the truth might be accused of false witness, the teacher be beaten with whips, the foundation suspended on wood, that strength might grow weak, that the healer might be wounded, that life may die. And back to the text. God, I'm choking. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appears to them, and the glory of God shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all people. Today in the town of David, A Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly a great heavenly host appears with the angels, praising God, saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. And now we try to think about what that must have been like to have been working that night shift, watching some sheep outside of town, just hanging out, hoping you don't have to fend off some wild animal. And out of nowhere, these messengers appear with what could only be described as the glory of God shown around them, and they begin to speak to you. Up on the screen now is a painting by Daniel Bonnell called Seeing Shepherds. And the reason that I wanted to show you this picture is to show you guys a pretty painting, I like it. But also, I wanted to show it to you to try to stir our imaginations about what's going on. The veil between our space and God's space is pulled back. Heaven is literally breaking through. I also want you to notice how it seems like the whole sky is full and how beautiful it must have been how overwhelming and probably really loud that it was. But the shepherds are on their knees worshiping too because it's the only response to being in the glory of God. This whole show of grandeur is shown to the outcast shepherds that are living in the fields with sheep. And the shepherds join in on the praise that's coming down from heaven. And now I want us to draw our attention to two words that these messengers proclaim to the shepherds. Glory and peace. We're going to look at glory first. The first verse in the song says, Glory to God in the highest heaven. The line is praising God for what just happened. The angel's response in announcing the Savior's birth, it's worship. And this is glory again. And what's wild, I had never made the connection to my mind before, but in this story, the glory of God is shown, and it is also the essence of the praise. The angels sing glory, and then they call out God's holiness, his set-apartness. And I think that being terrified is the only way that anybody would respond. The word for glory here is the Hebrew word kavod, and the word literally means heaviness or weight. So if you had to pick up one of those old like ginormous TVs that look like a box, you would say that TV has kavod. And the word is used throughout the Bible as a metaphor for somebody's importance or significance and somebody who's really important, you would say that person has kavod. And we still use this kind of language today, we just don't say that word. If you watch the really important or impactful movie, you would say that your heart feels heavy, that your heart feels kavod. But we also see this word being used to describe a physical manifestation of one's importance. This is most clearly seen in passages that talk about God's glory. So what the shepherds see in the arrival of these messengers is the physical manifestation of God's glory, and the physical manifestation of God's importance is with them. All throughout the scriptures, wherever we see the presence of God, the glory is with him, the manifestation of his presence. Think of the moment Moses experienced when he was in the presence of God. He literally came back from that glowing. So it's no wonder that the shepherds were terrified when all of a sudden all around them was shown the glory of God. Or we could think about when Solomon finally builds the temple and the glory of God fills that place. It's always a powerful moment. And notice the angels must say, do not be afraid, because the most common response to the glory of God is to be terrified. (laughs) And what's incredible is God's glory has now come to us. Consider what John says in his gospel. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory in the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. The glory of God has come fully in the person of Jesus. What once filled the temple and was out of our reach is now embodied in a poor Jewish baby. Now think about who this announcement comes to. What, we, what was only reserved for the select few is now being shown to some dirty shepherds in the middle of nowhere. And I think something that is often missed here, or maybe I just haven't spent much time thinking about it, but it says that the shepherds were living in the fields nearby. The shepherds were known as outcasts and thieves during this time. And these are the people that announced the arrival of the king. The angels weren't. The angels weren't the ones to tell everybody else in Bethlehem. God decided to use the broken, the lost, the wild, and the ones that nobody think are going to do anything worthwhile. And maybe this is part of the reason why later it says that the people were amazed at what the shepherds were telling them. Maybe it wasn't just because the shepherds were telling them, they were just caught up in God's glory and saw angels. Maybe they were surprised because of who was telling them these things. Fred Crack says, it was customary in the Roman Empire for po- poets and orators to declare the prosperity, peace and prosperity at the birth of one who is be- to become emperor. In that familiar pattern, but from heaven, comes the good news of joy and peace occasioned by the birth, not of an emper- emperor, but of him called Savior, Christ and Lord, and not in palace halls, but in the fields. To the poor and lowly, the news comes first. There being shepherds at all in this story is pretty neat, and it's cool because it ties Jesus to the shepherd king of Israel, King David. And if anything, there are shepherds here in the story to cause us to remember or at least think about how shepherds are talked about in Scripture. We see the motif of Jesus as a shepherd king, and throughout the gospel there is shepherd language everywhere. And in this moment, the shepherds become an important part of the story. They are now those orators declaring the arrival of the shepherd king. The second half of the song is, And on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. Peace in Hebrew is the word shalom, and it literally means wholeness or complete. The idea is that something really complex that is still whole, like a wall without crack or blemish, And the biblical authors use this word to talk about things when they are as they should be. They are shalom. This word is also used relationally. And not only when there's an absence of conflict, but when the relationship is working as it should, that relationship is shalom. When the angels sing this, they are declaring that in the person of Jesus, everything is going to be restored to its wholeness. And peace or shalom comes about because God does not look on from afar, but he gets up close and personal to deal with the evil, the injustice, sin, and darkness in our world. Peace meaning things are as they should be means the evil is set right. And all of this is kingdom language. And its use here at Jesus' birth opens our eyes to see heaven coming down. The cosmic plan to make all things right to bring us back to an Eden-like kind of life. All rests on this baby's life, birth, oh golly, birth, life, eventual death, and resurrection. Now, when we see God work among us, or we notice heaven breaking in, we too join in and sing praise. We, like the shepherds, join in on the praises of heaven, praying for wholeness and sitting in awe of his glory. Let's keep reading from verse 15. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told to them about this child. All who heard it were amazed as to what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all the things they had seen or heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. After the shepherds had gathered themselves, after seeing a host of angelic beings and being caught up in the presence of God's glory, they went to go see this baby that the angels had just told them about. And Fred Craddock again says, and so the shepherds go to the city of David. The shepherds and the scene are described with some of Luke's favorite words, words he's used before, like wondering, pondering in the heart, making known the revelation, praising and glorifying God. The stable is bare, but the glory of God floods the story. And that line's like been my favorite the whole time I've been studying. It just describes the whole story so well. The stable is bare. There is nothing spectacular about where the shepherds had found Jesus. But the glory of God was there. And this is how God works. Through your story and your life, you may think it seems bare. The glory and the grace and the love of God can flood your story. And maybe bare doesn't really fit your circumstance. Maybe chaotic is a better word. But the same is true. Through the chaos, let it be our prayer that we see his glory flooding into our lives and bringing about peace. In the changing of the diapers or chasing your kids, in filling out paperwork or dealing with rough customers, in anything and everything we do, let's pray that God open our eyes to see his glory flooding in. Let's pray that our hearts are open to let him into the chaotic and into the bare mundane parts of our lives. When the shepherds had seen and heard what the Lord was telling them, their response was to go, was to check it out. And I wonder what that moment was like when they finally found Jesus. After looking in shed after shed and seeing it just as the angels had told him it would be, their response was to spread the word. Out of amazement and after encounter, their natural and only response was to go and tell others. And this is what real, life-changing encounter with Christ looks like. In the mystery of not knowing why it was them that the angels told, and out of amazement and excitement about everything that has happened, this encounter leads to sharing. The picture that I see Luke painting for us is that of an upending of our predispositions of what we believe God and his kingdom to be like. We see Jesus being born to a young girl from a town that nothing good comes out of, in a shed where animals are kept. The king and the creator of the universe is laid in a feeding trough. And who sees the Messiah first? Who did the angel tell about the savior of the world being born? They told the lowly, the dirty, and the probably really smelly shepherds, and they were the first to witness the savior of the world. And this story is beautiful, and it's a wild reminder of how God works and who he uses to do this work. The kingdom of God is not brought about through the conventional mechanisms that we could imagine or that we would try to use if we were God. God moves in the unknown, using the unlikely, such that his glory is on full display. And Advent is a reminder of the kingdom that we are longing for. And it shows us how this kingdom comes, but it's not only a reminder, it's an invitation. So now I'll invite you guys to stand with me, if you're able. And I want to remind you that we aren't just about hearing the word. Um, We are about responding. So as the band plays, I invite you to respond. And maybe you feel anxious about some circumstance or some situation in your life, and it's nagging at your mind even now, pulling you away from this moment. Or maybe as we've been talking about God using the unlikely, something is being stirred inside of you. You feel that you want to be used, but that you may have gone too far. But I want to remind you of everything we just talked about. You are just who God is looking for. He wants to use and work through you. And if any of this is resonating with you as the band plays, I invite you to come up to the front with hands open in a posture of receiving. And there's nothing special about this front area. um, But stepping out from where you've been sitting is a physical embodiment of your response in saying yes to what God is doing in you. So as you come to the front, someone's gonna come and lay a hand on your shoulder and they'll just begin to bless what God is already doing. So let's respond now.